As of right now, WrestleMania has just finished its 38th edition. This is pretty astounding when you look back on the story and history of WrestleMania. This was an event that was a massive risk and could have easily backfired. Vince McMahon leveraged everything on WrestleMania 1, and if it hadn't worked, you wouldn't be here listening to this podcast today. The story of WrestleMania is as much the story of the rapid growth of the then World Wrestling Federation. I was a kid in the 80s, so of course wrestling was my life. But by the time the first WrestleMania came around, I was about eight just fully getting into it. This was a time when wrestling was real to all of us kids, and they would even print event results in the sports section of our newspaper. But this is a look back on the event that capitalized on the rapid success of the WWF and took everything to a whole new level. Welcome to the greatest sports entertainment spectacular of all time. Welcome to WrestleMania! wrestling did you grow up with? If you're my age, it was the Hulk Hogan WWF era. You may be a bit younger and only remember the Attitude Era. Or maybe you were in between eras and got on board during the awful New Generation years. Maybe you came in during Ruthless Aggression and the rise of John Cena. But if you go back further than this, you know the origins of WWE come from the old territory days. And this is an important part of the story of WrestleMania. Back in the 1970s, there was no WWF. There was, however, the World Wide Wrestling Federation run by Vince McMahon Sr. Wrestling at the time was made up of dozens of different territories. Some notable ones included New South Wrestling, Stampede Wrestling run by the Hart family up here in Canada, World Class Championship Wrestling out of Dallas, World Championship Wrestling or WCW out of Atlanta. They would obviously be a prominent organization a few decades later, Mid-South Wrestling out of Georgia, and the AWA. Each territory would stick to itself. Other territories wouldn't cross over to run shows in another territory because they were all fiercely territorial. There would be the odd performer who could go from territory to territory as an attraction. Andre the Giant was the perfect example of this. Since there wasn't any national TV, internet, anything like that, there was no way to see a grand spectacle. The only hope was for him to visit your territory to take on your local champion. This was great for someone like Andre the Giant because he wouldn't wear out his welcome by staying in only one place. But for the most part, each territory had its own homegrown stars. One notable territory was the AWA. They were formerly known as the NWA, not the NWO, NWA, and had a lot of talent such as Mean Gene Okerlund, Jesse the Body Ventura, Wendy Richter, Adrian Adonis, Nikolai Volkov, Jimmy Superfly Snuka, Sergeant Slaughter, among many others. Back in the World Wide Wrestling Federation territory of the Northeast, Vince McMahon Sr. was about to sell his territory to his son, Vince. Vince Sr. assumed his son would keep things as is, but Vince Jr. 
notice the changing landscape of entertainment. It feels as if cable TV has always been around, but in the early 80s, there was no such thing. As mentioned, you could only watch televised wrestling of your local or closest organization. With the advancement of cable TV, you could now broadcast shows around the country. Vince Jr. saw what was happening and knew it presented an enormous opportunity. He had amassed a wide range of talent by bringing in other territory performers, mostly from the AWA, and they now joined the newly named World Wrestling Federation. Vince knew he had a better product than his other territory competitors, and he wanted to take them all on at once. Cable TV was finally the way to do this. Everyone involved with Vince Sr. went nuts. This was absolute blasphemy, and this sort of thing just wasn't done. Vince McMahon says that if his dad had ever known what his plans were when he bought the company, he never would have sold it to him. And Vince Jr. didn't want to stop there. There was the chance that this thing could be taken globally. He had all the talent, but was still missing one piece of the puzzle. Who would be the showcase performer to represent the WWF? Terry Bollea had started training to wrestle in the late 70s. He was a big, strong, good-looking blonde guy. Bollea would wrestle in Alabama with his partner, Brutus the Barber Beefcake. They would be known as the Boulder Brothers. Terry would then move to the Continental Wrestling Federation in Memphis, where he would often go by the name Terry Boulder, sometimes using the name Sterling Golden. While appearing on a local talk show, Bollea was a guest with TV's The Incredible Hulk, Lou Ferrigno. At 6'7 and nearly 300 pounds, Bollea dwarfed the Incredible Hulk. On the show, it was pointed out that Bollea was the real Hulk. Bollea quickly adopted the name Terry the Hulk Boulder. Bollea would be part of the AWA and was in the group of wrestlers that would be snatched up by Vince McMahon Sr. Vince Jr. immediately saw the star potential of Bollea. The blonde surfer look, match with the 24-inch arms, made him the perfect performer to take the WWF nationwide. The WWF had various characters of different nationalities. They had Italian wrestlers, Polish wrestlers, and Russian wrestlers. Bollea would represent the Irish. They dropped his real name, but kept the Hulk, and then just added Hogan to it. A new era of wrestling was about to begin. One of the first things Vince McMahon did was put the heavyweight championship belt on Hulk Hogan. He would defeat the Iron Sheik at Madison Square Gardens in 1984. Hogan was larger than life. He was charismatic and a physical specimen that no one had ever seen before. WWF programming was now being beamed around the country, so what used to take years worth of promotion was being done in a few weeks. Kids like me were completely enamored with this real-life superhero, not to mention all these other amazing characters that seemed straight out of the pages of a comic book. Vince McMahon had moved wrestling away from smoke-filled armory rooms into full-blown sports entertainment. Hulkamania was soon running wild, and he was everywhere. He encouraged kids to say their prayers and take their vitamins. He appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated, which was pretty astonishing for an industry that was ridiculed by the regular sporting world. Vince was right. His product was better, and it would only continue to grow. 
There's no telling how this might have played out in a different situation, but the further growth of wrestling and WrestleMania as we know it might have come down to a chance encounter on an airplane. Cindy Lauper was one of the biggest pop stars of the time. On one of her many plane trips was a fellow entertainer, but he came from the world of wrestling. It was the legendary manager, Captain Lou Albano. The two hit it off, and it ended up with Albano appearing in Lopper's video for the massive hit, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Vince had the idea of capitalizing on the explosive growth of another new medium, MTV. The WWF was like an athletic rock show, and it seemed like the perfect marriage. The WWF and MTV would put on joint wrestling shows that had celebrity involvement and would air on MTV Live. It would be dubbed the Rock and Wrestling Connection. The shows were all sellouts and the ratings were astronomical. Two events would make up the pinnacle of the Rock and Wrestling Connection. The brawl to end it all and the war to settle the score. One of the events scored a 10.0 rating, which for a non-network was insanely good. The Rock and Wrestling Connection created storylines from the Girls Just Want to Have Fun video, but brought in a character with the goal of disrupting all the fun, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Now, every big sport and event has its massive showcase of the year. There's the Super Bowl, the Oscars, the World Series, the Stanley Cup. It's the culmination of the entire year. Maybe wrestling should have something similar. Vince McMahon realized this was a no-brainer idea. Take all their best wrestlers and storylines in conjunction with MTV and create a one-night extravaganza filled with celebrities and the best of the WWF. But what would they call it? Vince wanted to originally go with, not joking, the Colossal Tussle. Legendary ring announcer Howard Finkel thought back to the early days of the Beatles and how that phenomenon was dubbed Beatlemania. WrestleMania was born. The WWF was running hot, and all of the success had happened in barely a year. Would people be into a grand spectacle, and how are they going to broadcast it? The event would take place in the unofficial home of the WWF, Madison Square Gardens, but they needed to make money on this thing because it was costing a fortune to put on. They could air it for free on MTV and get a massive rating, but that wouldn't recoup the costs. The idea came to use a style broadcasting that had worked for boxing, closed circuit television. If you're under 30, that name probably means nothing to you, but it was the only way to broadcast the event and make money off it. There was obviously no streaming services back then, no WWE network, pay-per-view was still years away. Closed circuit was the only option. Today, the WWE doesn't even use the term pay-per-view. All the big shows, WrestleMania, Survivor Series, Royal Rumble, everything, are considered premium live events, and we can only see them on the WWE Network or Peacock. If this is new to you, again, Closed Circuit was paying to watch a live broadcast on movie screens, but in sports arenas or big theaters. Would people pay to watch wrestling on TV at a hockey rink? and pay quite a lot to do so? How could you control the broadcast? What if it went dead? What if the image was terrible? What if the sound went out? Vince McMahon was gambling a lot on this gigantic wrestling showcase. The costs were getting out of control and it got to the point of no return. He would put everything into WrestleMania. 
Not only had he leveraged the entire company to make it work, but unbeknownst to his wife, Linda, he apparently mortgaged his house. This was either going to work or Vince would go bankrupt. The company was all in on WrestleMania. But what would be the major draw to hook people in? Hulk Hogan would obviously be the main draw, but what is a great hero without an evil adversary? Rowdy Roddy Piper would be the opponent, but they needed to take it further than that. Along with Cowboy Bob Orton, Paul Mr. Wonderful Orndorff would partner up with Piper. Hogan had Cindy Lauper in his corner, but she clearly could not wrestle. What could they bring in to get even more eyes on the show? If you grew up like me, there were several can't-miss shows that re- required viewing each week. Transformers, Dukes of Hazard, and The A-Team. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Lawrence Turod was possibly just as big a star as Hulk Hogan, but we all knew him as Mr. T. Love hearing the voice of Gorilla Monsoon. But what better way to elevate this wrestling spectacle than by bringing in the biggest action star on TV? The WWF would create an angle where Mr. T came to the rescue there of Hulk Hogan to ultimately join forces with him to take on Piper and Orndorff. Now you had the entertainment world completely fixated on this strange wrestling event. McMahon would take a similar gigantic risk years later when he brought in the baddest man on the planet, Mike Tyson, to be featured in another WrestleMania featuring another performer that would save the company, Stone Cold Steve Austin. So the final match was set, but here's how the rest of the first WrestleMania cards shaped up. Opening match was Tito Santana versus The Executioner. There's a lot of stories where Santana was borderline threatened by McMahon to set the tone with the opening match where the entire event could crumble. Then we had King Kong Bundy versus Special Delivery Jones, Ricky Steamboat versus Matt Bourne, Brutus Beefcake versus David Sammartino, son of the legendary Bruno, Junkyard Dog versus Greg the Hammer Valentine, The Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov versus the U.S. Express, which was Barry Windham and Mike Rotunda. If you're a wrestling fan, Rotunda would go on to become IRS and is the father of Bray Wyatt. 
Andre the Giant would take on Big John Studd in the $15,000 Body Slam Challenge, and Wendy Richter would face Liliana Kai. You can see how the use of celebrities in wrestling goes right back to the beginning, but it was more than just Mr. T and Cindy Lauper. McMahon was pushing this as the greatest wrestling spectacle of all time, so he needed to cover all his bases. Instead of only having the national anthem sung, which was sung by Mean Gene Okerlund, McMahon had America the Beautiful perform before the event because he thought it sounded better. Eventually, they would drop the national anthem and just stick to America the Beautiful to begin WrestleMania, which is a tradition that continues to this day. They would bring in the legendary Ray Charles to sing it. Liberace would serve as a special guest timekeeper. Legendary baseball manager Billy Martin would be the guest ring announcer. The Rockettes would perform. And in a huge deal, the icon Muhammad Ali would be the guest referee. Mr. T and Cindy Lauper may have been enough, but McMahon went full on with the celebrity inclusion to make sure that on March 31st, 1985, the event had as many eyes on it as possible. Remember, even though it was gaining popularity, pro wrestling was still a very niche attraction. Cindy Lauper, Mr. T, and the other celebrities would be what drew more eyes to the event, and it was the star power of Hulk Hogan that would keep them there and carry the business forward. You know something, everybody out there, man, they've been seeing me and my main man T for the last seven or eight weeks training all over the country, man. California, Chicago-style brother, and in New York City, and all points in between, daddy. And everywhere we've gone, we've been nasty to all our fans and all our little people. And right now, we want to make a formal apology because we got a really big match coming up. About 12 hours from now, Madison Square Garden, WrestleMania, that is. Hulk Hogan, Mr. T, against Rowdy Roddy Piper with the skirt and self-proclaimed Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. We came to Saturday Night Live for one reason, brother. We haven't been eating any food all week. We've been drinking grapefruit juice, eating skinny little chickens. And tonight, my main man T told me if we came to Saturday Night Live, we'd get a laugh because this is the best darn show in the whole wild world. Professional wrestling is a funny business. It's easy to call it fake, but predetermined is a more accurate phrase. But back in the 70s and 80s, wrestlers were fiercely protective of the business. They call the act of staying in character kayfabe. Hogan and Mr. T, like you just heard, went on Saturday Night Live just 12 hours before the event in character to promote WrestleMania. The thing was getting so much attention that many were wondering if professional wrestling was in fact real. The other thing wrestlers at the time were very protective of was not letting outsiders in. One of the most adamant about this was Roddy Piper. He hated the fact that a celebrity like Mr. T was going to be wrestling. He hadn't paid his dues and traveled the country learning the craft as they did. Today, it's a regular thing to see celebrities in wrestling matches. In the last few years, we've had Johnny Knoxville, Pat McAvee, Bad Bunny, even Snooki have performed in matches at WrestleMania. Having celebrities at the event was okay in the 80s, but to the wrestlers, not in the match. Piper planned on making it a living hell for Mr. T. He believed that Mr. T didn't appreciate the business. Mr. T was tough, but Piper was also a former amateur boxer. Piper didn't believe he was getting the respect he deserved for carrying the hype for this match. After all, a great good guy can only exist when a great bad guy is there to thwart him. Piper really was the unsung hero of the early days of the WWF and WrestleMania, and over his career, never once got the heavyweight championship. 
Piper, Orndorff, and Orton also didn't like the direction wrestling was going and heading into this sports entertainment. All of them, especially Piper, wanted to show Mr. T that this was no joke. As the lead up for WrestleMania came, Mr. T was getting cold feet. He was legitimately concerned he would get hurt in the ring. On the day of the event, he was nowhere to be seen. There are various stories about this, and some come from Hulk Hogan, and some things he say, says can be taken with a grain of salt, but they say that they eventually found him near Central Park with a bunch of homeless people. Hogan had to reassure him that things were going to be fine, and they just needed to get to MSG. Eventually, Mr. T with a huge entourage made it to the garden. While this is going on, WrestleMania is already underway. When it came time for the finale, and really the focal point of this entire event, the match did go off without a hitch. Hogan and Mr. T would win, but the only change was the original plan was for Mr. T to pin Piper. Piper refused, and that's why we got Hogan pinning Mr. Wonderful. Mr. T was a great athlete himself and in amazing shape, but if you go back and watch the end of this match, he is so exhausted that he can't even lift his hands over his head. So let's look at the aftermath of WrestleMania. Obviously, the event was a huge success. The gigantic risk paid off. There's also another issue I haven't covered yet. This was still the early days of the WWF, and as mentioned, all of this success seemed to have happened within a year. There was no guarantee that this was going to last. It could have very easily fizzled out after WrestleMania, and the wrestlers would just move on to new territories like they always did. Many promoters thought the WWF was a fad. When the idea of a super event came about, some wrestlers were hesitant. Hogan has said that all the other promoters were already pissed off with Vince and Hogan for what they were doing. One promoter had allegedly offered the Iron Sheik $100,000 to break Hogan's leg in that match back in 1984. Having a super showcase may piss them off even more. A lot of the wrestlers were worried that if they worked the WrestleMania event, they would be blackballed from other promotions forever. There was no guarantee this thing would work, and as far as they knew, there would only be one WrestleMania. It wasn't going to be a yearly event or anything like that. But the event was, of course, a success, and the explosive growth of the World Wrestling Federation meant its performers would be well taken care of financially and would never have to go back to the old territory days. In fact, the territory days would fade away. Many would still exist, but the WWF was clearly the dominant promotion. No one could compete with Vince's star power, money, and television distribution. And then there was WrestleMania itself. More than a million people purchased a ticket to watch it via closed circuit. I remember it being promoted at the main hockey arena in my city. The place held about 5,000 people and was apparently a sellout. This seemed to be the case all over North America. At the time, WrestleMania would be the most watched closed circuit wrestling event ever. The WWE, WWF has always been vague about their actual numbers, so we don't know if that million is correct. There was a report in the LA Times that said the event made around 12 million on those 1 million closed circuit purchases. Other reports said that it made around 4 million or 8.5 million when adjusted for inflation. But then the event would be rebroadcast in different markets to buy via cable TV. The event also made another 1.1 million in ticket sales at Madison Square Gardens when adjusted for inflation. Who knows the exact final figure, but the fact is the first WrestleMania was a massive success and forever changed the landscape of professional wrestling. 
Covering the WWF in the 1980s could take weeks. This is more of a quick snapshot of the rapid growth of professional wrestling, culminating in a unique event that continues to this day. WrestleMania remains the granddaddy of them all and the focal point for the entire year. When WrestleMania 1 came around, the popularity of Hulk Hogan and the WWF was only just beginning. The company was going global and it's amazing to see what it's developed into. I've been lucky enough to go to a WrestleMania. It was WrestleMania 18 when the WWE came back to the Skydome in Toronto. I got to see the man who started it all as it was the iconic matchup between The Rock and Hulk Hogan. If you're a wrestling fan, I don't need to explain this moment to you. If you aren't, and I understand that people don't like wrestling or don't get it or whatever, this match and this moment with 70,000 people is something I will never forget for the rest of my life. What was supposed to be a one-off event turned into an annual tradition. The company would become truly universal and appeal to all walks of life. Some say there was no greater period than pro wrestling in the 80s. The money and attention it received weren't even taught by the phenomenal Attitude Era. Whether or not this is true isn't really important. What is important is the massive risk that Vince McMahon took back in 1985. WrestleMania would be the beginning of a new era of professional wrestling, and there was no looking back. So let's finish it there. Hopefully you like this look back on WrestleMania, and I think everyone is a wrestling fan at some point, and during the 80s it was impossible to ignore. So, I mean, if this show does well, maybe I'll cover specific other WrestleManias through the 80s, like WrestleMania 2, 3, 4, 5. They were all significant events on their own and maybe worth looking back at, too. But I'll finish up here. And if you're interested in supporting the show and if you're in a position to do so, you can check out Patreon.com. That's the platform to support small independent creators like me and this show. And the difference is for as little as like a few bucks a month, you get different audio rewards depending on which tier you support so say the boba fett level that's the everything 80s movie club where review all a bunch of classic movies from the 1980s then there's other tiers where you get shout outs and bios on this show where you know you get to share some of your favorite things that are heard by thousands and thousands of listeners i release these episodes early there before they go out worldwide if you're interested and you want to learn more just go to patreon.com slash 80s, so it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash 80S, or wherever you're listening to this on, there should be a link that'll take you right there. So that's it for me. I'll be back soon with a new episode, and in the famous words of the legendary Billy Red Lions, don't you dare miss it. <laughs>